me. I'm Leah. I'm the pastor here at Haven Berkeley Faith Community. Super glad you're here. Um, so it's Lent. Welcome to Lent. That is the six weeks kind of leading up to Easter. It's a time that the church um, has traditionally set aside for reflection, for kind of spiritual sojourning with Jesus. Um, so we're going to be doing that ourselves. Um, we have some ways we can invite you folks into um, that we'll be talking more about. But I just want to acknowledge at the top here. I, it, it feels weird to say Happy Lent. So maybe more like, welcome to Lent. <laughs> so anyway, I have a few stories to start with. The first um, comes from about a year or so, the first year or so of my marriage um, to Jason. Uh, I, and so I was, I used to do this thing that was really annoying to him uh, early as newlyweds. It would be like Friday night and he would be asking me like, so what do you think we should do for dinner? Or like where do you want to go tonight? Do you, you know, it's date night. What do you want to do? And I had an opinion. I always had an opinion. But maybe I wanted pizza. Maybe I wanted a juicy hamburger with french fries. Uh, I didn't necessarily want him to know that. Okay? So I would like, I, maybe I was afraid he wasn't feeling it for those things. Maybe he wouldn't like my suggestions. Maybe he would kind of uh, think I splurging on hamburger and fries wasn't really something I should be doing. I don't know. So I'd play it coy. I'd always be like, I don't know, whatever. I'm open. What do you want to do? You know, I'd be kind of like that. And, and then he'd suggest something. And I'd make a face. Right? Or he'd pick a restaurant and say, okay, we're going here. And I'd be like, oh, <laughs> I'd sigh. It wasn't what I wanted. That was clear. It was obvious. And I had just put Jason in this impossible position of not telling him what I wanted, of acting like I didn't have an opinion, and then being annoyed with him for not reading my mind. Has anyone ever done that with you? Have you done that? Yes. All right. That's story number one. Story number two. We almost had a sweet, free Valentine's Day in my house this week which in the eyes of my children would have been very, very lamentable. Um, so here's the context. We have a place, we call it the treat bucket, where all treats in our house, things with sugar, live. And they are only to be brought down, you know, very occasionally after a meal with a, like a designated amount. Um, and things have been disappearing recently from the treat bucket. And they have been disappearing. Like, it, it's, it was first like a trickle. Like, man, I think things are going a little quicker than they should be. I just bought candy, like, a couple days ago. Why is there not more here? Um, but then it became quite obvious about a week ago. Like, no, there's actually a lot that's missing now. Um, and so we had, we did, but when we asked the kids, do you know anything about this? Nobody, nobody admits to knowing anything about it, Right. And so we don't know what to do. Like, how can we stop it if no one's going to own up to what's happening? So Jason and I felt like our hands were tied. Uh, somebody's lying to us. Someone's taking desserts, not admitting it, so we can't hold anyone accountable. Um, we hadn't caught anyone in the act, but the evidence is piling up. So we declared a moratorium on treats until somebody fessed up. It might not have been. I don't know. I'm not sure this is a good parenting technique. It was just the best we could come up with in the moment. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, we said, all right, 
we're taking rid of all the we're getting rid of all the sugar until somebody confesses and we can talk about how we keep this from happening in the future. Um, and so this was about three days before Valentine's Day. Um, and the first day or so, no confessions. And, and it's real. In our house, Valentine's Day is often a day when sugar will appear and, and then be, you know, part of the, 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 the bucket is magically replenished for a season. And so, um, so there, I think everyone was aware, like, maybe that won't happen this year. And how would that feel? So it was the night before Valentine's Day. I take the kids to Target to pick out some cards to give to one another. And I think the view of all of the candy at Target was like, you know, this truth serum. <laughs> because, lo and behold, in the aisles of Target, I got a full-out confession. And so there was sugar in our house on Valentine's this year. One more story. About a year ago, Jason and I found ourselves in the position of needing to replace our car. We're a one-car family, and our car had been totaled in, in an accident. Um, the insurance company was giving us like a handful of days before we ha- had to return our rental car. So time was kind of of the essence to go ahead and buy something else. We really didn't want to finance anything. We were just thinking, okay, you know, it's a used car. It's an old car. We'll just get something about equal value with the money that they give us, maybe a little cash we have on hand, but we're not going to finance anything. So we're figuring the best way to go is Craigslist. Um, So we're looking on Craigslist for what can we buy in cash used uh, for what we have. And as we're looking, a lot of the cars we're interested in seem to be in the South Bay. So Jason takes off early. A Thursday afternoon, we're like, we need to have this rental car turned in by Monday. It was a busy weekend coming up, so we were kind of hoping we could just get it done. Um, we made an appointment with a whole bunch of, of sellers. We're driving to San Jose on a Thursday afternoon. Kids are in the back of the rental car, and the trip has issues from the start. We have a wad of cash with us, ready to buy a car. Um, more than one person cancels as we're driving towards San Jose, like, Person after person that we had lined up to see their cars are calling us and saying, we just sold it, can't make it, something like this. We're like, oh, the cars are being sold out from under us as we speak. Um, Kids are squirmy and loud. Traffic is bad. We finally get to one car. It's a dud, not something we want to get. And then, like, as we're in the middle of, like, what do we do? This car pops up, like, just posted on Craigslist. And it looks like a great deal, like, Low mileage, exactly what we're looking for, and uh, even a little better than what we're looking for, and the price is good for the mileage. And so, so we call the guy, um, we're like, okay, we're jumping on this right away. And he's like, yeah, I can show it to you right now. Um, it's like, great. Uh, he arranges you know, to meet us at a parking lot at a nearby Target, so we do that. We drive there. We meet him. We test drive the vehicle. He's asking a little more than we were hoping to spend, but for the vehicle that it seems to be, it's a great deal. Um, so we're like, okay, we can, we can swing it. We'll do it. Kids, of course, are like, it has a DVD player. We had told them not to expect that, but now they're leaning on us hard. We're exhausted, feeling a little frustrated with the whole process. Like, let's just get this done. Let's just do this. If we can just do this, that would be awesome. We hand over the cash. We sign the title. We take the keys. We drive our new van home. When we get home is when we finally do the due diligence we probably should have done before signing on the dotted line, right? We look up the Carfax, okay? 
My advice to you in the future, I wish I had done this before, just look it up on your phone in the parking lot. But we did not do that. So anyway, we get home, we look at the Carfax. We were thinking, it's low mileage. It's like under 60,000 miles. So like how much, how much negative history could there be? right? We get home just to see, okay, when has it been serviced last? Is there anything we should know about? And that's when we find out, ha, it's not 60,000 miles. On Carfax, the, tile, the, the car has been registered for over 130,000 miles. We've been lied to, okay? Later, we would speak to folks uh, from the San Jose Detectives Department, and we would find out that our car was part of a whole crime ring that is being investigated in the South Bay. So buyers beware, okay? There is a network of folks currently who are buying cars, and then they're turning them over to other people who alter the mileage digitally. They have this, like, computer hacking tool to hack into Hondas and Toyotas and such and roll back the miles. Um, And then they they doctor the titles to match. Um, and then they turn it over to another group of people who actually sell the cars. So it's very hard to trace anyone here because, you know, it's like goes through all these different, um, all these different people, and the cars are never actually registered to any of them, okay? So the guy that we met in the parking lot forged the signature of the person who was on the title who was the last, like, legitimately registered owner of the car, but that was probably, like, four people ago, okay? So those are my three stories. All these stories feature some sort of deceit, right? Some variation of untruthfulness. All of them are ultimately about lying, in a sense. The motivation for the lies, the consequences of them vary, right? The stakes on the first story are like way lower than the stakes on the third story, right? But all of them are some example of ways that we humans can be untruthful. Now, there's been a lot of research by psychologists on lying in recent years, and they've yielded what might be some surprising results to you. Um, First, they say humans, and this has been duplicated many times in the last 20 years, and even, I would say, outside of the Internet. Um, Humans are lied to as many as 200 times a day. Some people say uh, within a... Five-minute conversation, you'll receive like 10 lies, potentially, um, face-to-face conversation, okay? Around three-quarters of these lies tend to go undetected. We don't even know it's happening. Children, our lovely kids, demonstrate the capacity to deceive as early as six months old, okay? Anyone who had a baby can probably remember that that place, right, where the kid will start to pretend to cry for attention when nothing is actually wrong with them, right? That's a form of deceit. Psychologists will say that's actually a helpful milestone marker. It's like a developmental trait. This child now has what you call theory of mind. They're able to understand that human beings can, like, make a decision about something, that they have like a way of thinking. It's not just what I see is, right? I can actually manipulate people's thoughts. Um, so it's, it's like smart The kids learn how to do this. It, de- it shows that they, they are developing correctly, but it's also a little disheartening as a parent, right, when your kid starts to lie to you. So all of this is relevant to us this morning. Because this is our second teaching in a series on personal character, the series that I started two weeks ago, but it'll be our Lenten series called Character Matters, 
Okay? So each of these next three sermons throughout the season of Lent, we're going to consider some aspect of personal character, some aspect that Jesus, as a Jesus-centered community, will think about what did Jesus actually seem to care about and think about how in our present context, I would say in a world where sometimes it, it feels questionable at best if character is even a thing we care about anymore, um, how might Jesus' advice to us actually bring insight, clarity, life to us and those that we interact with? Those are the questions we're going to be considering this Lent. We're living in a moment where misinformation is everywhere, right? Where it feels increasingly difficult just to nail down what is true, what is false, what's real, what's not. I mean, just this Friday, Friday afternoon, 13 Russian nationals were indicted for doing what? For spreading lies on the internet, right? It can make you feel like maybe we should just throw up our hands and say, you know what, what can we do? Maybe we just give up on trying to know the truth altogether. But believe it or not, this is not just a thing of this moment, right? The temptation to misrepresent information has been with us a really long time, probably as long as there have been human beings. And Jesus had some things to say about it. So we're going to look briefly at, uh, at what he had to say about it. And this comes to us from Matthew 5. It's part of his Sermon on the Mount, kind of like a great treatise, um, a lot of which has to do with personal character. So let's look at what happens in Matthew 5:33. Again, you have heard that it was said to an older generation, do not break an oath, but fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, do not take oaths at all. Not by heaven, because it's the throne of God. Not by earth, because it's his footstool. Not by Jerusalem, because it's the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, because you're not able to make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. More than this is from the evil one. So at first glance... This text might be puzzling what this has to do at all with what I've been talking about. I mean, the context is so different. What is Jesus' direction not to take oaths? Some translations say don't swear. Have to do with how we interact with one another. I mean, I wasn't swearing by anything when I told Jason I didn't know where I wanted to go for dinner. But some people have interpreted this text really literally because of that question, right? believing it only applies to something like testifying before a court of law. And they might even say, you know what, my religion forbids me to ever even take a vow in court. Um, But I think this kind of narrow reading is actually really missing the thrust of what Jesus is calling his followers to. To better understand the text, I think we need to consider how people related to each other in the ancient world that Jesus was a part of. And the way that oaths and vows functioned in those relationships. Okay, so first it's helpful to remember that the ancient world was one, by and large, without a paper trail, certainly without a digital trail, right? There was no chain of emails to go back and trace what's gone down, right? There wasn't even a chain of letters, a chain of receipts. Literacy was very rare in Jesus's time. It, It existed. That's why we have these texts. There were a few people who could write, But it was very rare, right? And and just the tools to be able to do it were very rare. They were hard to come by, okay? 
the printing press and the Reformation, where Martin Luther said, you know what, we should be able to read the Bible in our own languages, that was the kind of the technological revolution that would make literacy kind of a global phenomenon. That is, how, what, that is the moment when the majority of humans would come to interact with the written word in like a very casual, everyday way. But that was 1,500 years in the future from what we're talking about now. That's how far we are from this, what our understanding is of like how we interact with people in writing, right? It just wasn't a thing, okay? Verbal agreements were the foundation of human interactions. Your word had to be your bond. That was real, okay? Now think about also the implications of a no paper trail society on how commerce would be done. It was a bartering society, okay? Every economic exchange required some sort of relational negotiation based on the cultivation of some sort of trust. You had to trust in people's words, what they said. That was the only thing you could hold one another accountable to. Yet human beings struggled with trustworthiness then as much as we do now. It's just the way that those struggles manifested were different. Okay? They didn't share Russian memes on Facebook. They used oaths and vows in creative ways to get around the truth. So what did that look like? Well, the oaths and the vows were this way of testifying to the veracity of something you said. So one would swear an oath as a way of testifying to the truthfulness of what you were saying. I promise I was here. I oath it. I, I, I vow, I, I make an oath to, to Zeus, to Jupiter, that this is true, okay? A vow was a specific kind of oath, okay? A vow was a promise, it's a, a subcategory, a promise of an actual possession. You might take a vow to pledge money to somebody, a vow to pledge your daughter in marriage, a vow to pledge your livestock, People would do this unto God. You take a vow to give a tenth of your income to God, to the temple. Okay? And when you took that vow, it was like saying, if I do not fulfill this, may whoever I am vowing to like, have revenge on me, punish me. They will hold me accountable. Does that make sense? So the Greeks would often swear oaths to Zeus or Aphrodite. Often the women would swear to Aphrodite. Um, when they were making some sort of economic exchange or wanting to testify that the thing they were saying actually was truthful. And to do so was to say that this deity they called upon could punish them if they spoke falsely. And the Israelites did this with Yahweh. Okay? And as Jesus is pointing out, the Jews had their own challenges with how they dealt with oaths. Okay? The text he's referring them to, because he starts by quoting this, you know, you've heard it said, the text he seems to be referring to, uh, making reference to, is Leviticus 19.12. This is a, a text from their ancient law. So we'll just take a look at that specific verse first. It says, You must not swear falsely in my name, so that you do not profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. So the followers of God have taken this idea, this proscription against swearing falsely against Yahweh, and they interpret it to mean, okay, God doesn't want us to call on God to back up what we say. 
we're going to, you're taking your life in your hands if you do that. That's, that's kind of how they understand it to mean. So they say it would be better to swear to something else. Something that seems like it has similar authority to swearing to Yahweh without actually calling on the divine to back up your promise. Does that make sense? So instead, they come up with these elaborate, creative alternatives. Jesus points out a few of them here. They swear by heaven instead of the one who lives in heaven. They swear by the earth instead of the one who made it. They swear by the city of Jerusalem instead of the deity that this city is meant to worship. In Matthew 23, Jesus gives another account of how ridiculous some of the religious in Jesus' day are getting with this. They've worked out this whole system of supposed loopholes every time they take an oath. And he points this out. This is uh, Matthew 23, verse 16 on. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple is bound by nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is bound by the oath. Blind fools, which is greater? The gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? And whoever swears by the altar is bound by nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by the oath. You are blind. For which is greater? The gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it, by everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it, one who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God, the one who sits on it. What seems to really be the problem? with all this oath-taking? Is it actually the swearing part that God doesn't want to be called upon as witness to your truthfulness? Or is the problem actually desiring to swear falsely? The false part. This is where the Pharisees, Jesus is critiquing, are like profoundly missing the point. Their system of oaths and vows and legal loopholes has created a system where they can ultimately be fast and loose with the truth. The only reason to invoke anyone other than Yahweh in your vows is if your vows are actually false. Right? Otherwise, what do you got to fear? By calling upon something less than God, they were ultimately creating a way of trying to bolster their authority, the authority of their claims, without actually being held accountable to them. Does that make sense? It, it, it has the, uh, the sounding of like being a, a sacred thing without actually taking on you what it would mean to profane the name of God. It was like a profound system of crossing your fingers behind your back. Like a whole organized system of it. I think the text Jesus is referencing in Le- Leviticus was never actually meant to get people to come up with creative technical ways that they could swear without profaning the name of God. That was actually not the intent of the verse at all, okay? It was actually a verse about trying to get people not to lie, okay? Not to be deceitful. And that seemed important to God because for Yahweh, dishonesty was connected to harming others. It was connected to oppression. Let's look at the broader context for that little verse that Jesus was quoting. Same verse, but this is what it's actually in the middle of. When you gather in the harvest of your land, you must not completely harvest the corner of your field. And you must not gather up the gleanings of your harvest. You must not pick your vineyard bare. You must not gather up the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You must leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. 
You must not steal. You must not tell lies. You must not deal falsely with your fellow citizen. Here's our little verse. You must not swear falsely in my name so that you do not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You must not oppress your neighbor or commit robbery against him. You must not withhold the wages of the hired laborer overnight until morning. This is not a text about hurting God's feelings by taking God's name in vain. It's a passage about hurting one another. God doesn't want us to be deceitful because it harms our relationships and it hurts one another. God doesn't want us to steal from each other. In their day, observant Jews were expected to leave the corners of the fields, the leftover parts of the harvest, the gleanings for the poor, for the widows, the orphans, the foreigners among them. If one didn't do that, this implies they are stealing from the poor. That is how God saw it. This is the context God is calling on folks not to make these false vows. It's not that God doesn't want people to vow. It's that God doesn't want people to cheat and to lie and to steal. God doesn't want God's people to be swindling one another. But thousands of years later, in Jesus' time, the swindling has continued. People have just found this sophisticated way of doing it thinking that somehow they're now less accountable. And, but Jesus is saying, cut it out. Stop all the swearing, oath-taking. You're using it as a way just to justify your bullshit. That's what you're doing. You shouldn't need a way to justify it. You shouldn't need a vow at all. Just cut the bullshit. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. The literal Greek here is... Say yes, yes. Say no, no. It's a double affirmative and a double negative. And in Greek, that, was, that meant like extra strength. Extra strength, yes. Extra strength, no. Okay, it's powerful. It's emphatic. Jesus is asking people to give answers that are just straightforward and clear. Enthusiastic, abundantly, yes or no. None of this pussyfooting around. Yes, I want a hamburger and french fries. Yes, I took the candy. No, the car is not really 60,000 miles. Right? Clear. It's not that Jesus is saying we can never be sworn in under oath. I don't think that's what he's saying. Some people have interpreted that way, but Jesus himself testified under oath at his own trial, as did Paul and other Jesus followers. Okay, that, that's not the point. The point is don't get God involved in your BS. Just tell the truth. So a number of years ago, I was introduced to um, a tool called the Enneagram. I have a picture here. I have found it to be a tool that's very helpful for self-understanding and growth. It's an ancient personality indicator. You can kind of see. each Basically, there's nine personalities. It's a typology. It says that all people, basically, the, the premises fit in one of these nine categories, okay? And all of us are unique and different, of course, but there's still, like, kind of, like, general categories that we tend to operate under. And, uh, and this is a pre-Christian thing, but it has been used in different, in the last 2,000 years, uh, at certain times, often by, like, uh, monks and nuns for, 
spirituality. It was big in the, in the medieval times. And then uh, Richard Rohr is a Franciscan father, contemporary spiritual leader, who's done a lot of work with Enneagram, written a book on it, introduced a lot of contemporary Jesus-centered people kind of to its usefulness. It's kind of been rediscovered in the last 20 years, I would say. Um, and one of the things Rohr does in his, his book is he actually reflects on each type's kind of core sin, is part of the thing. I mean, he reflects on, like, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? And this is one thing he identifies. Part of our character that's most challenged, I would say, to conform to, say, the character of God. If we think of sin, the word sin means missing the mark. It just means, like, we're trying to head towards this way, but we keep going that way. Um, here's where we're most likely to get off track. So, according to the typology, I would be a three. Okay? The three is known as the performer, the achiever. Performers are really good at executing things. They, they know how to perform. They often lead well. They tend to be strong in front of a crowd. Richard Rohr would then say that my core sin is deceit. I struggle with being fully authentic. I want people to praise me. I want people to admire me, to think I'm doing well. But with that comes a temptation not to be fully real to say whatever will garner the most admiration, respect, sympathy from whoever my audience is. Threes tend to be really good at reading the audience and kind of knowing how to color things in the moment in a way that will be sympathetic. And it's often a subtle practice. It may not ever be an outright bold-faced lie, but there are other ways to be deceitful, aren't there? I can omit some key details in the telling of a story that might color it to look more like something you'd find sympathetic. I might exaggerate, shade things differently depending on who I'm talking to. And while that can be an effective communication strategy, it can also be a subtle way of escaping the truth. Now, threes might be a master of this game, and I, and I acknowledge, like, you're all probably sitting here like, why should I listen to what thing this woman has said now, now that I know she's a three. But let's be honest. Threes are not the only ones who do this. Okay? We're just probably you know, the, the most practiced at it. Pamela Meyer is a researcher, an author, and a trainer in the area of deception and lie spotting. She did a TED Talk a few years ago um, on these issues, and she said this quote that I thought was interesting about humans' propensities to lie. She said, lying is an attempt to bridge the gap, to connect our wishes and our fantasies about who we wish we were, how we wish we could be, with what we're really like. Lying is often the way that we fill our perceived gap with others, right? A way we preserve an image of ourselves, present it to the world. As people who are particularly invested in what others think, threes may do this more than others, but everyone tends to do it in some way. So when I was a newlywed, that's what I was doing, right? It was that insecurity that caused me to be a little untruthful. To Jason, I felt embarrassed about my desire to eat pizza, or have a hamburger and fries, or I wanted to look more open-minded than I really was. I wanted, to, I wanted him to think I was, like, totally cool and just go with the flow, and I don't really care, except I did, right? And ultimately, that wasn't helpful for our relationship. It was stealing from Jason the opportunity to just know the real me. It was stealing from myself the opportunity to be known and accepted and loved as I really am. As long as I was wearing some sort of mask, however subtle, the real Leah wasn't visible. 
Joseph Sharand is a psychologist who says most lies fall into two categories, what he calls white lies, generally told to maintain social status, and strategic lies, told to deceive another person or group for personal gain, the person who, the, the whole ring of people who, you know, falsified the mileage on our car. They got a few extra thousand dollars out of that vehicle, right? That was, that was, the, temp, that was the strategic motivation for that lie. The problem is, if you say, okay, as long as I focus on the white lies, I'm good. Problem is, one often does lead to another. Okay, like psychiatrists have done these like brain studies on us and, and found the more we tell even the small falsehoods, the part of our brain that would generally kind of feel uncomfortable speaking untruths begins to change. We begin to fear the consequences less. We get better at making up untrue stories. We can move from lying simply as a way to protect our own image to lying to hurt others. And the shading of the truth doesn't just happen in relationships, right? It happens on this widespread scale. The media is filled with people who are paid lots of money to spin, to paint a narrative that's just not fully accurate even if it sounds mostly factual. There may not be even any direct lies to point to, but there's implication. And the spin colors people's perception of events, and it tells folks how to interpret things. It sets up a framework for them to process information through. And once that framework's in place, it is really hard to dislodge it. And it shapes what's further interpreted as truth or bounced off and disregarded as not truth. Spin. Shading the truth, these white lies, all of them are ways we have our own versions of oaths and vows that keep us from being fully honest while preserving our own sense of ourselves as having integrity. All of them eat away at our capacity to be forthright, to say yes, yes, no, no, and expect that from others. So as we end, in our moment in time, In this cultural moment, what might Jesus' words from 2,000 years ago to his followers about oaths and vows mean for us? What do we do with all this? I'll just end with a few suggestions. First, I think we need to pay more attention to spin. And this is both the spin we produce and the spin we consume. Okay? What would it mean for you to take a day And, like, just kind of self-analyze every comment you made to somebody and think about, why did I say it that way? Why did I choose those words? What was I hoping for in that interaction? What if we actually took the time to kind of self-critique and look for the places we might be subtly trying to color another's perceptions of us, to spin them? What's our agenda in that? What would it mean for us to move more to a yes, yes, no, no? Okay, I'm not talking about let's just be like rude and say things that aren't helpful. I'm not saying that. (laughs) But what does it mean? You don't have to speak everything in your brain. But what does it mean to move from less of a how thinking of our relationships as some place we spin to a place where we're more authentic and forthright? And then how do we pay attention to the spin we consume? 
what is the agenda of others who are telling us things? This could be in a personal interaction. It could be at work. It could be in the media we consume. Maybe we consider limiting our exposure to things that seem to have a lot of spin to them. Or perhaps we consider balancing one point of view with another, right? Trying to bring in more alternative points of view so that kind of one framework, one set of spin doesn't have a, a, such a strong kind of um, way of shaping our, our own thinking. So that's one thing I think we can do. Pay more attention to spin. Another idea, hold each other accountable. Hold each other accountable. So Pamela Meyer, she's the, like, the, the TED Talk lady on, on lies. She says lying is a cooperative act. Have you ever thought about it that way? Lying is a cooperative act. It takes at least two. Right? There's the person who lies. There's a person who believes it, who participates in it in some way by receiving it. Often, that person wants to believe it. I wanted to believe that this was a great deal on this vehicle. I wanted to believe that. And so I did not do my due diligence. What if we worked not only to be more transparent, but to empower one another to, keep, to be more honest? Like, what if we committed to actually calling BS on each other more? I'm not saying be, like, so skeptical that you can't believe a word that anyone is saying. But what would it mean for us to kind of create count cultures, at least in our community, of shared accountability? Like, pushing back. I had to do this this week uh, on social media with someone I love who was sharing disinformation, uh, you know, hours after this horrible tragedy in Florida about who the shooter is, right? And I don't know if you were aware but, like, within hours, there's stuff being shared on Twitter and on Facebook that, uh, that the shooter is DACA, is one set. That the shooter is uh, undocumented. That the shooter is, the one I saw, uh, was an Antifa, like, crazy leftist Antifa person. Um, this is that, that's the rhetoric. And then it's like, oh, well, there, there you go. This is the problem. We're going to point the finger at this issue. But unfortunately, I had to push back. I actually did my first, like, call up Snopes, like, email them. Is this, this isn't right, right? <laughs> and get the, get the, like, yes, verification. Yes, that is false. Sent it to my loved one. They took it down. But at that point, a lot of damage had been done. It had been reshared and all of that, like, many times. Um, we need to be willing to vet the stuff we share on social media. If we're, I feel like if we're going to be on it, there's a certain amount of, like, we need to be accountable to what we're participating in, right? To call it out when we see it, because it also happened on the other side. You know, a lot of us may have shared or seen this statistic going on around about, uh, that came from every town about this is the 18th mass shooting in a school this year, this calendar year. That's actually not very accurate. It turns out maybe there have been shootings that happened within school campuses, but most of them were, like, like a suicide or something. It's, it's just an inaccurate spin. Does that make sense? With an agenda. How willing are we to participate in, in not doing that, in actually calling people out, whether we agree with the point of view or not, um, into not sharing misinformation, into not doing that ourselves? So we can pay more attention. We can hold each other accountable. And here's the third thing. I hope that we can do together uh, throughout Lent. 
and going forward. Allow our connection with God to inform our identity more than the perception of others. Allow our connection with God to inform our identity more than the perception of others. When we're able to more fully experience ourselves as beloved children of the divine, then we have less we feel like we need to prove. We have less gaps we want to fill in. The Bible uses this language of evil personified. It like personifies evil with words like Satan. Right? The devil. Jesus calls it the evil one in his, in his passage. And these words literally mean like one who accuses. One who comes against. An enemy who conspires to take us down. And Jesus talks about that being rooted in deceit. At one point in John, he says, he is a liar and the father of lies. We tend to believe a lot of them about ourselves. Those whispers that we are unworthy of being loved, those self-condemnating thoughts, self-condemning thoughts that, that keep us from being able to show ourselves fully to the ones we care about the most. But Jesus comes empowered by what he calls the advocate, the parakaleo in Greek, the Holy Spirit, the one who has authority to speak truth to lies, to say no, no, emphatically to deceit, to call out the whispers in our heads and our hearts that testify untruth, that we're unlovable, that we're unworthy of care, that we're too messed up to be accepted by others or by God. A core reason we deceive others is because we are afraid of being not enough of being rejected for who we truly are. We may even deceive others because we want to deceive ourselves. My hope for all of us this Lent is that we could grow in greater self-awareness and self-acceptance and greater knowledge of a God who holds us in love and acceptance. A God who made us, delights in us, is committed to silencing the lies that keep us from seeing ourselves more clearly and allowing others to see us clearly too. That's my hope for us this Lent. You can be considering some new practices throughout this season of Lent that could help with that. Um, we have uh, a lot of people find it super helpful to do like commit to a daily five minutes, ten minutes prayer practice. You could uh, identify something specific that you might want to be praying for this Lent. Something you'd like to see, perhaps in this area of accountability and character, maybe of self-revelation that you're praying for. Or maybe it's just something really practical. I really need a new job. What would it mean for me to take five minutes a day, every day this Lent, and pray about that? Meditate Meditation can be helpful. There's, there's a Bible reading passage. I have some tools I'm happy to share with you all. If you didn't get the email, let me know. If you did, um, there's some places you can link to get some, some guides if you're interested in like a daily guide that might help you with some of that. Um, you might consider fast. I like to fast in Lent. Just taking something. It can be uh, some way that you interact with the world, say a social media fast. It can be, I, I tend to fast from alcohol. Um, as a, just a way to say, okay, this is something that's like a, a regular practice in my life, but during this season, I think it's healthy 
to, to step away from that practice and to examine, does it mean more to me than I would like it to mean? And does it, um, and every time that I might kind of miss it, what would it mean for me to direct that energy, you know, to reconnecting with the divine instead? Those are ways that I am trying to tap into informing my identity as beloved by God more than anything else. So I'm going to pray for us as we end. And then we'll take a little time to, to think about this together. Jesus, I invite your presence as the one who calls us into greater truthfulness and forthrightness. And ultimately, I believe the one that wants us to experience full acceptance and love as children beloved of the divine. Would you help us in the weeks to come experience more transparency before you? Would you open our eyes to the places that we feel like we need to hide from ourselves, from you, from one another? And would your spirit be the voice of truth that says no, no, to the lies we believe. And yes, yes, to the hope we have in you. Amen.